0: I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect, and from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy brian lehrer on wnyc and now republican senator ben sass of nebraska he's written a new book called them why we hate each other and how to heal senator so nice of you to come on again welcome back to wnyc
1: Thank you, Brian. Good to be with you. I appreciate the invitation.
0: People say these days we're too divided into political tribes, but your book laments collapsing tribes. What do you have in mind?
1: So I think we need to distinguish between good tribes and bad tribes. Our political tribalism is definitely a bad thing, but I think it's a downstream effect of something bigger, and that is that we're living through a digital revolution. And the technological tools that are coming to us, you know, for the last couple of decades and for the next half century probably are unprecedented in human history. And they allow us to become rootless when almost all the literature on happiness now shows that people are happier when they're rooted. And so I I think we need to recover a sense of using the term tribe to talk about our family and deep friendship and about shared vocation and meaningful work and about local worshiping communities. And if we understand what is happening when the digital revolution undermines place, it makes a little more sense why political tribalism comes in to fill those vacuums.
0: You document what you call a loneliness epidemic in this country. What leads you to believe there is a loneliness epidemic?
1: So I've been listening to a lot of researchers at the NIH and other places, and it's pretty fascinating what's happened over the last decade. A decade ago, there was near consensus among public health researchers and epidemiologists that the number one cost driver in American healthcare, for example, was obesity. It's still a really big proximate cause, but it now looks like about two-thirds of op- obesity is actually epiphenomenal of loneliness. So loneliness is coming really, really fast, and it produces lots of other problems, loneliness Ob- uh, loneliness Loneliness is tightly correlated with decreased life expectancy. Loneliness relates to uh, it's about the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This year, we're going to have the third consecutive year of declining life expectancy in the US. We obviously didn't have great data during the Civil War. uh, So there were probably three, three and a half years of declining life expectancy in that four year um, bloodbath. But in the history of data we have, we've never had three years of declining life expectancy. That's weird for the richest nation in the history of the world. And it flows from, from these upstream consequences, these upstream causes around loneliness and community collapse.
0: And you cite the number of times people have dinner in someone else's home or others in our homes declining over the years. And along with that, you cite the rising size of the average American home. Why that as a contributor to an us against them country?
1: Yeah, it, it's a strange thing. So uh, first of all, I want to uh, acknowledge some of my intellectual debts. Robert Putnam is incredibly important to all of this literature. There are a bunch of other scholars who've contributed as well, and I'm I'm just borrowing from them. But it is strange that we live at the richest time and place in human history. Middle class Americans, despite all the income inequality, which is a big problem, decl- despite stagnation of wages over the last two to three decades, we're still, we have the richest middle class in the history of humanity. And yet, despite greater and greater material largesse, we have more and more dissatisfaction with our lives. And when you try to unpack some of that, one of the things you find is that median new construction housing size of six and a half decades ago was about 750 square feet. Today, it's about 2,400 square feet in the U.S., so a near uh, a near three and a half fold increase in the size of our houses. It turns out that doesn't actually make people happier. What happens is when your houses get bigger, they're more and more separated from your neighbors. And statistically, it's less likely that you know the person who lives two doors down, and yet knowing the person two doors down is correlated with happiness. More social media friends isn't, uh, but actual neighbors Mm. is.
0: And house size, I guess you're saying, indicates happiness is being defined as getting a little further away from our neighbors, but it may backfire on us. Senator Ben Sasse of Nebraska, my guest on WNYC, his new book is Them, Why We Hate Each Other. One of the breakout news stories from your book, if you search Ben Sass' new book online, uh, I don't know if you've done it for yourself, but the first thing that's going to come up is a number of stories about how you, a conservative Republican from Nebraska, spend almost 20 pages of the book criticizing Sean Hannity as your prime example of media polarization. How do you see the big picture of that and Hannity's place in it?
1: So I I divide the book into thirds and the long last third is the constructive third. What do we do about it? How do you rebuild neighborhoods? How do you figure out how to get the cell phone off your dinner table so you don't inadvertently send those signals to your kids that you don't really want to be there with them? But the first third is about declining local tribes, traditional tribes, good tribes, neighborly stuff. The middle third, though, is about media consumption, really. It's about politics as well, but it's really about the way that we consume media. And what distant media does is help us think about help in scare quotes, help us think about the world in us versus them categories of who we're going to be against. It's really hard. If you're trying to find grand meaning in politics, instead of the important stuff we should be doing, like how do we get a cost effective infrastructure bill done? Uh, If you're trying to find grand meaning in politics, you're mostly doing against you're mostly doing anti tribe. And more and more of our media consumption, especially the ways we consume cable news right now is about who we're against nobody he's trying to speak to a 70% or an 80% or a 90% America, people are trying to intensify the 1% audience that they already have. And so wh- whether people like or dislike Sean Hannity, whether they watch his show or don't watch his show, I think they need to recognize that he's really, really good at what he does, which is nutpicking, not nitpicking, but nutpicking, which is in a nation of 320 million Americans, there's probably always some jerk somewhere on the political spectrum doing something crazy And if you want to tell your audience that that is the representative picture of a liberal or a progressive, you can find a bad, mean-spirited, dumb person. Mm. And in the same way, if on the left, you want to tell your 1% audience that there's some nutjob conservative that is wearing a MAGA uh, Trump hat and he really hates everybody and kicks puppies all the time. You can find that person that isn't actually very useful for your neighbors to know. It isn't very useful for our kids in a republic where we're going to have to go forward together. And Sean Hannity, if you if you watch the formula for how his shows work, the beginning is almost always find, take some moment that's scary or fearful in life and find a way to take a liberal or progressive and put the bad guy demonic hat on them and then kick off the show from there as if they're actually representative of everybody who's a Democrat. And again, I I say this as the second or third most conservative voter in the U.S. Senate Mm -hmm. by voting record. I'm a principled conservative. I want to argue with progressives about politics and legislation but I don't think I have to hate them. I think they should be people I want to invite over to dinner. Uh, I want their ki- I want them to know that if their kids skin their knee in my driveway, my wife and I are going to swoop them up and hug them and, and put a Band-Aid on mm, their knee and yeah. tell them to get back on the bike again.
0: That's a good thing. And I think the problems you're pointing out are resonating widely across political lines. But let me challenge you in a couple of ways. You're not, you a, bet. You're not a sociology professor. You're a U.S. senator. So, What do you contribute by doing this book-length analysis of our culture and our private sector lives rather than laying out how you all in the Senate can break the cycle of polarization in politics that's having such bad effects?
1: Yeah, great question, I'm glad you asked. Um, The reason our politics aren't working right now is because we're not using politics for politics, we're using politics for theology. And it's, it's not a very useful thing, it's not actually gonna work, and so right now, You have a lot of people trying to find deep deep long-term meaning in political coalitions Which really should be a lot more pragmatic than they are and so I think that cable TV news is Swallowing the United States Senate whole there's all sorts of things we should do which are commonsensical and practical But we don't do those commonsensical things because you have people across the political spectrum Who talk about people on the other side of a political divide as evil? So there's data that shows I think this is pure data a bit. Don't quote me on that. I think uh, in in the mid 1990s, 14% of Americans regarded the other party as evil. Today, it's 41%. So you've had a tripling of the number of Americans who regard people who have different policy positions or legislative priorities as not just naive or confused or going to produce unintended consequences but is actually maliciously motivated. You re- it's really hard to find common cause with people to do something pragmatic if you start with an assumption that political divides mm-hmm. uh, are good versus evil.
0: And I guess a progressive could also argue that your book, while decrying Hannity and political tribalism generally, makes an essentially conservative argument, which is don't look to politics for solutions to political problems. Look to your own behavior. Would that be a fair critique?
1: Uh, Partly. So let me agree in part. uh, But let's also distinguish between two terms. I think small government and limited government are different things. I believe in both of them. um, But limited government is much more important than small government. If the traditional American political continuum, at least since World War Two, has been on the right, you have conservatives who believe in small government intervention in the economy. And on the left, you've believed in people who believe in a medium amount of government intervention in the economy. And then much farther left, um, you'd have more socialist commitments. And obviously, parts of the Democratic Party are wrestling with some of those questions. But that continuum from small to medium, that's a policy or a legislative debate. Above that, going up one echelon, the more important thing is the shared American understanding of limited government, which is that we don't believe government gives us rights in America. We believe that people are endowed by nature with inalienable rights and that government is a shared project to secure those rights. Government isn't the author or source of those rights. And that idea doesn't belong just to the right. Um, The left in America as well uh, has traditionally embraced a constitutional system that says the First Amendment is is about the rights of free speech, press, religion, assembly, protest, or redress of grievances. Those five freedoms of the First Amendment are the beating heart of the American system of government. And that's really a system of limited government, which says government maintains a framework for ordered liberty so that the local communities where you live can flower and thrive. Because those communities of love are where people actually find happiness.
0: We have a few minutes left with Republican Senator Ben Sasse of Nebraska, whose new book is Them, Why We Hate Each Other. And you have mused about leaving the Republican Party. People have speculated you might challenge Trump in a primary for the soul of conservatism and soul of America. How close are you to either of those things?
1: Well, on, on the latter point, let's just set that aside. I have uh, three little kids, 17, 14, and seven. Uh, when my seven-year-old was two, we lived on a campaign bus for about 16 months. I, I think I'm one of eight people in the U.S. Senate who's never been a politician. And my then two-year-old, I think, vomited in about all 93 of Nebraska's counties. So uh, thinking about multiplying that by 50 uh, sounds like a really uh, unappealing proposition at our life stage. But to the point about the two political parties, I think it's important to remember that the founders didn't want this system. George Washington, when he's leaving office in 1797, but in December of 1796, he gives his farewell address, and he warns against factionalism. He warns against, he says, um, a republic like, like ours will live forever or die by suicide all the armies of Europe will never be able to drink from the Ohio River, and now I'm sort of jumping forward uh, from Washington to to Abraham Lincoln in the 1830s, because this this idea was so deep in the American uh, sensibility about what we were doing as a republic. We will only die if we decide to allow factions inside us to become the grand thing that allows us to, to tear each other's hearts out. And right now, those scabs are so deep. There are so many issues where Americans are willing to go to war with each other, why I subtitled them, uh, why we hate each other, this tripling of hatred of the other party or tripling of a regarding the other party as evil. I think right versus left right now uh, is important on a number of issues, but the much bigger set of policy issues we face are past versus future. We don't have a cyber doctrine for the digital era. We don't have a theory of what job retraining is going to look like in a world where, according to McKinsey, um, 50% of Americans are going to be fundamentally freelancers by 2021, meaning that there'll be no majority source of their income. But people will put together a lot of different kind of Uber-like jobs to add up to a livelihood. We need to recognize that 40 and 45 and 50 and 55-year-olds are going to be disrupted out of their jobs and their industries and their skill sets by new technologies. We need to think about job retraining. Neither the right nor left has many good ideas about this right now. So I think the vast majority of things that I care about uh, in the political and legislative domain are past versus future. And I don't think either of these parties have a long-term plan.
0: I know you got to go in just a sec. Your previous book was also more about culture than politics. You were on for that one too, The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis. Give us a closing thought on what, if anything, ties your two books together.
1: Yeah, thank you. I was a college president before I ran for uh, Senate. And so The Vanishing American Adult was really about this new category of perpetual adolescence, how it's more and more difficult to tell 10, 15, 20, and 25-year-olds apart adolescence is a glor- glorious concept, the idea that you don't have to become fully an adult just because you hit puberty, you have a protected space, but we don't want adolescence to last for 10 years. And so that coming of age moment ties pretty tightly to a lot of the issues that uh, one chapter of them deals with about the disruption of work, which is going to happen not just for our 20 and 25 year olds, but for our 40 and 45 year olds as well.
0: Ben Sass, Republican senator from Nebraska and author now of Them, Why We Hate Each Other. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you.
0: Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Much more to come. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org election.